This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to ask a real basic question. When should fights be stopped? What is your personal rubric? We'll also talk about the making of this May 30th Tyron Woodley versus Gilbert Burns fight and why it's so great. And we'll dig into the mailbag. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. And don't forget about that mailbag, Show at gmail.com. All right, Luke Thomas Show. Let's go to a different place to start the show today. So yesterday, Anthony uh, Smith was on his radio show, MMA Tonight, with RJ Clifford, and he finally had his chance at length to say what he had to say. I've only heard like one of these cuts, and I think we have a bunch of them. So let me say this. I I am certain that what you are going to hear in these audio clips if your view is at all similar to mine are things you don't agree with. Okay. This is not audio to present to you to sway your opinion, because I don't think that the opinion he holds here is the correct one. That's just my, that's just my view, but I don't, I don't agree. I don't agree with Anthony. And I know that he has, you know, infinitely more experience on all levels of this kind of thing than I do. But, um, I'm not alone in my position. You've seen other regulators come out, commentators, fighters, coaches. You've seen a lot of people come out and, and sort of echo the, some of the same opinions that I have. So I'm hardly alone in this. Um, but the reason I think it's actually important to hear what Anthony has to say, and this is something I still struggle with. You're going to be like, look, you're a hypocrite on this. Yes, I am. I'm very much a hypocrite in what I'm about to tell you, which is that I, I have spent big portions of my life addressing arguments just the wrong way, man. I have tried to like browbeat people. And look, man, sometimes there is a moment for just fire and brimstone and cut the BS and just call it like it is. I get it. But I've done that personally way too much. Instead, if you really want to convince somebody, you have to fully understand where they come from. You have to fully understand why do they think the things that they do? How did they get there? What are they espousing? And why do they think it's okay? And until you've fully done that, you're not going to convince anybody to change. So in that spirit, let us hear what Anthony has to say. Some of this audio you might find shocking. Some of it you might find frustrating. Let's just get through it and then we'll address it. All right. So let's go in order here. According to Anthony Smith, he has given a clear directive to his corner that if you are going to corner me under no circumstance, do you throw in the towel? Cut one. I took that choice from my cornerman a long time ago. I have a rule. If you want to sit in my corner, you don't stop fights. That's the rule. They know that. If, if you throw the towel in or you stop a fight that I'm participating in, you can walk back to the locker room by yourself and I'll never stand with you again. That's the rule. They know it. Anyone close to me knows it. I don't need any liabilities in my corner. Mm-hmm. Someone who's willing to stop a fight while it's happening is a liability. And I don't need any liabilities. I, I don't need to be in the shit in a bad spot trying to battle my way out of it, worried that someone in the corner can't handle the heat. If you don't like it, then don't sit there. You know what I mean? Like, if you feel like you want to stop the fight, go back to the, go back to the locker room. I don't need that liability. And, and so I feel terrible that my corner is taking so much heat 
for one of my roles. There's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, so number one, to me, what it sounds like is, and I made this point when I talked about how boxing corners will stop fights when guys are competing for $1,000. The idea that the purse is split between win and show, again, I cannot tell you that it plays no role. I tend to think that its role is greatly outsized relative to its actual importance, number one. Number two, um, if the fighter is putting constraints on the corner like that, the corner is almost always going to just comply because one, they probably find that the situ that a situation like that will be relatively rare, and two, you know, they probably like their chances to just get out of there even with a bad beating, but not you know, uh, grave consequences per se. But really, I think you know. Here's why I would disagree with Anthony on this. You know, you can feel bad for your corner, and I, and I certainly, I imagine that he does. You know, they have come under significant scrutiny and criticism. But if you have put parameters on them that don't allow them to make a wider range of choices relative to your health and safety, this is the inevitable consequence, right? The reason why they're in this position is because, I mean, I don't know if they would have stopped it if he hadn't given them this ultimatum essentially but because he gave the ultimatum that's for sure why they're in this position they they, they were forced not forced i mean they agreed but they were essentially to a degree coerced into it so it, it, it's understandable that he is not pleased with the way in which the you know mark montoya who we've had you know nothing but positive things to say typically on this show and james Krause, who i thought had a phenomenal performance in his last fight even though he, he, he came up on the losing end um, these are not bad people. And I said it before, but if you put good people in bad situations, they're going to make bad decisions. You know, this is the inevitability of that policy prescription that he has given to them. So, you know, if you don't want, if you don't want them to be in that kind of position, um, you have to take away that parameter. Now, if, again, if they do it on their own, well then, you know, the criticism is all there to bear, but, um, to the extent that they didn't do it because of that ultimatum, you know, the, the architect of that arrangement is essentially Anthony. And he said, he's telling you that, um, he does, however, believe that fights should be stopped. Just not his cut to, I don't know if I would say my exact fight, but if your question is, do I think corners need to step in and stop fights? 100%. Okay. Absolutely. Just not, um, yours. just not mine. And that's the thing I'm willing to throw in the towel and stop a fight. Uh, I just told the story today. My best friend in the whole world, best man in my wedding, me and this dude been through the craziest shit together mm -hmm. for forever. He's my best friend in the whole world. And he well, he was a fighter. He fought on the regional scene. Pretty tough dude. Uh, you know, never made it to that next level. Uh, in his last fight, he shot a takedown. Dude stuffed a takedown and spun around on him real quick and hit him with one of those shots from behind the arm that you don't see coming. Uh, same, like, same situation with uh, uh, Dan Henderson hit Fedor with. Mm -hmm. Same shot. Oh, I was God. stopping the, the fight. Arm. Yeah, I was stopping the fight, and the ref just beat me to it. Like, I was standing up screaming, like, you got to stop this fight. Okay. And it was just one shot. He got hit like that. Like, I'm willing to stop fights. I, like, I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a talent if it needs to be done. 
I just don't, I don't want any part of it for myself. I would love to know why uh, Smith would believe that, he, I mean, because we're making this as a matter of preference. And ultimately, if the corner stops a fight, that is a function of choice. But in terms of why the corner should look out for others and not him, it, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand his position. Is the argument merely that he doesn't want that for himself? And so that therefore he requests or demands even that the corner not do it because otherwise I'm not entirely sure what the basis of where he would, what is the basis of deciding that he should not be subject to those considerations other than preference. And then you have to ask what the preference is. And then the problem becomes the preferences. If you take that preference out to its logical conclusion, you know, you're, you're going to not necessarily in this case, but in others, you will necessarily court tragedy and you'll put your corner in an uncomfortable position to make difficult choices. Still, I'm not entirely certain. All right. We're asking a really basic question. What are you looking for in stopping a fight? What do you have? Do you have like a rule of thumb and how would you have applied that in the Smith fight with Teixeira? 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Now we've got a couple of extra cuts here from Anthony from the uh, radio show, Anthony Smith, of course, that he did with uh, RJ Clifford yesterday um, as it relates to these particular considerations. So here is what Anthony Smith says on the commentary team being in tough fights and, and continuing on. It is what his his response to, to some of those considerations. Cut eight, please. I felt a little bit betrayed, you know, like. Like, come on, guys. Like, you guys have never been in a tough fight? Mm. I watched Felder fight a couple times, if I if I remember right, with broken arms and shit. Uh, he, he had no problem going back out there and finishing the fight. Didn't he have, like, a collapsed lung one time? Still fought? Finished He's the been fight? through some shit, that Felder. Right? Yeah. Like, I love Bisbing, man. That guy, is, he's a, an inspiration to me. Bisbing is a, is a legend, and his toughness is, is unheralded. You know what I mean? It's unmatched. God damn it, for a couple minutes when Anderson Silva dropped him at the end of that round, he was a goddamn dead body. And his corner had no problem sending him right back out there, and he ended up winning that fight. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're talking about stopping fights, like, if you wanted to stop my fight, then Bisbing's fight with Anderson at the end of that round had to be one of them. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree with that at all. A uh, couple of things. The punctured lung that Felder had happened in the third round, and, of course, you know, they didn't know that it had happened. He, I mean, this was not until a medical evaluation was done, and then they revealed it had he had it, you know um, suffered it. But that was at the very end of the fight, not the beginning. And by the way, Felder won that fight. To be clear, number one, number two, uh, certainly it was bad when Bisping got dropped at the end of the third round. That's true, but the reality is, in the fourth, he came back out and had the highest degree of output that he had had of any of the either subsequent or prior rounds. There's no break between rounds where Smith came back and showed the ability to still win a fight that way. Remember what he even said about the fight being stopped. He said that the fight was stopped appropriately, right? Like when it was stopped, according to Smith, it was stopped at the time that it should have been. In other words, while you could make a case, and by the way, that knee was considered to be a late hit by some, but okay, different different discussion. Um, you could, if you wanted to argue that you know he was done there, I, I don't agree that there was enough body language to show that that was true. Plus, it was at the end of a round, so it's kind of hard to evaluate. But okay, how did he look in the fourth when he came back out? 
he looked dynamic. It was literally his best round. If you had come out, excuse me, if Smith had come out in the fourth or the fifth and shown that kind of resiliency, and again, I'm not bagging on him because he didn't. I mean, Glover was, you know, on that night. I'm really saying if that kind of behavior had been repeated in the Smith versus Teixeira fight, the comparison would hold, but it doesn't. It just got worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, It quickly got better for Bisping. Got dropped with a knee. One minute later, starts into his best round. Clear evidence that the fight uh, was still winnable for him. Right? There was never any of those moments once the takedown started to happen for Teixeira. It just got bad to worse. But okay. He is saying that the commentary team... um, I don't know. I could be reaching here without speaking to Smith. I don't want to put words in his mouth. And so I'm going to just guess. And that's what this is. This is a guess. But my guess is it makes him feel like he wants to be clear. Like I'm not a victim. Like he doesn't want anyone's sympathy. He doesn't want people to feel like he was weak and overwhelmed or, um, lesser than, uh, and I think when people talk about a fighter who needs saving there's i think some fighters feel like there's almost like a paternalistic element to it all and they don't want to be made to feel that way which you know certainly you can understand it can't be easy uh all right and then he says lastly he's not the only one who wants to go out on his shield cut nine please i'm not the only one that wants to go out on my shield you know i'm just the only one with the balls to tell everyone and, and I'm one of the few that, that makes sure that I don't have any other option. It's one thing to say, oh, I want to go out on my shield. To put yourself in a position where there is no option but to go out on your shield, it's a totally different story. In terms of public disclosure of those kinds of things, I, I, he might be, he may or may not be alone. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But I suspect that the view that they want to go out on their shield and then the corner's view that they should go out on their shield you know, I got to be honest, I suspect that that is pretty widespread, perhaps not in the same, you know, I mean, Anthony seems to have very clear sense of uh, the reality of it all. Perhaps the other fighters and corners aren't quite to that degree uh, in touch with what he is asking of himself. He, he might be alone in that regard, certainly. But in terms of this idea that they, you know, when it really gets bad, I really don't actually want you to get in there. I really would rather just win or lose. Um, and I would like you know, on my own terms, or I, I, if I'm going to lose, I would like the, you know, the every conceivable possible chance to come back. Um, I suspect that's actually pretty widespread. You know, you talk to a lot of fighters off the record, you talk to a lot of corners off the record, you know, they'll say, yeah, I don't want to take a beating. Yeah. You know, I believe corners should step in. They'll say a lot of the same things, you know, you hear from Anthony, but then when it comes to practice and Again, I don't know how much it has to do with the purse. I really just don't believe that argument very much anymore. But when it comes to things like how they're viewed by the community, how they feel like maybe they let themselves down, you know, a lot of it has to do with uh, the preservation of a sense of self, right? They view themselves with a certain degree of ability and vigor and strength of spirit, and that should be accompanied by an understanding that they are entitled to a greater degree of latitude when it comes to these kinds of considerations more than most people. I, I think that that 
is probably fairly widespread. I mean, look, man, if you want to fight for a living, you're going to be accepting of risk in a way just most people are not, right? Just in general. And then if you're an elite fighter, I suspect that gets even more pronounced. And then in the cases of someone like Smith, you know, he, again, he has a very clear-eyed um, sense about this whole thing. But the idea of I have a commitment to my own identity that certain practices have to be kept in order for me to maintain, I, I think that probably goes, you know, here's why it's hard to convince them to change because you're not merely asking them to change best practices. The practices that they keep are central to maintaining, I think, their identity and then their value system. And until you really begin to change that, you don't have much of a hope of convincing them that there's a better way to do it. You know, and again, it's easy to be like, oh, the COVID stuff was media versus everyone else. Dude, DC said this kind of stuff. Paul Felder said this kind of stuff. Michael Bisping, you know, numerous other people on social media who are, you know, totally embedded and successful in the fighting community. It, it, it seemed fairly widespread. Um, but I, I suspect that what we're dealing with here and why this is a, a ongoing issue is we are talking about a group of people who have committed to a lifestyle and an occupation that requires them when they look in the mirror to have a sense of what is there. And to an extent, it might be an inflated sense, you know, which would be understandable because you have to go and hello, fight another human being. You're going to tell yourself a lot of nice things if, if, if you have to do that. And some of these strange practices that we view with a sort of a crooked head, like a puppy being instructed to sit for the first time, they are part and parcel of what it means for these other folks to maintain that ability to look in the mirror and recognize who's there. I think they would rather have their face all blown up and their teeth missing and adhere to certain practices because while they might physically look different in the mirror when they do that, they internally keep a sense of self. And how you, how you rewire that, <clears throat> man, that's a, hard, that's a hard thing to do. That's a very, very, very difficult thing to do. And frankly, I'm not sure I know what the answer is. Um, this is why I think until people see that this path leads to a certain place, until they see that there are consequences that they have to then deal with that are immediate, irreparable, and potentially catastrophic, I don't know how to get them to reframe those priorities. Uh, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you do that. This is Frank Isola. While the games are on hold and we're all going through a lot right now, the starting lineup is still talking hoops on NBA Radio. Jeff Van Gundy joins us. After a playoff series, win or lose, did you always go down and shake the other coach's hand? Coach Riley, we, we never shook hands. The players didn't either. True sportsmanship is how you play the game. It's not after the game do you shake somebody's hand or not. Hear the show weekday morning starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on NBA Radio, Sirius 207, XM86, and anytime on demand with the Sirius XM app. Let's do this. So we've got some great news that I, I would love to share with you, and it goes something like this. Uh, this comes to us from MMA Fighting. 
Former UFC welterweight champ Tyron Woodley and Gilbert Burns are now expected to meet on May 30th. Not this weekend, but the following. The welterweight bout is in the process of being finalized after it was targeted for May 23rd. Burns on Tuesday morning announced he'd signed the bout agreement for the fight, which is expected to headline the May 30th event at a location to be determined. Now, uh, you can uh, go, go back to what the Las Vegas Review-Journal reported, that the 30th of May will be in Las Vegas. It will not actually be in Arizona. Um, okay, neither here nor there. Now, I've not heard about Woodley's side of things, but I think MMA Junkie, I want to check here in real time very quickly, I believe that they reported the exact same thing. So let me verify this here very quickly, because I got to tell you, I absolutely love this fight to the nth degree. I think this fight is just so cool, so good. Uh, I feel bad for Leon Edwards, to be perfectly honest with you, but we'll tackle that situation here uh, in a bit of a different um, a moment. Okay, so here's what MMA Junkie had reported. Um, on Tuesday, Gilbert Burns announced on Twitter that the fight, you know, he had been signed. Uh, Burns specified that his bout agreement was signed. UFC broadcast partner ESPN citing sources later confirmed the matchup. So it appears that it is all systems go. Okay, let me tell you why I love this fight. I really, really like this fight. Putting Leon Edwards to the side for just a moment, both sort of metaphorically and, uh, and beyond. But just hear me out. This fight is super intriguing. Now, I've had a major complaint about the rankings um, as it's done in general, and in particular as it relates to Tyron Woodley. He's sort of been emblematic of what is wrong with the rankings in the following way. He loses to Kamaru Usman not, the, not two months ago in March, but a year prior to that, so approximately 14 months. And I believe, let me go to it right now, I believe as it stands, he is still the number one contender. So let's verify that, yes. Okay, so the people who are making the rankings clearly have no idea what they are doing because the rankings are designed not as a measurement in your mind about who I think is best. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of that. It's rather about which contender is actively winning enough to be ranked ahead of the other one in pursuit of a title. That's why the, the champion is not ultimately ranked because they are not in a position to be ranked. They are the owner of that accomplishment. We are trying to grade who is most deserving among all possible contenders. It is not possible to make the case as it stands today that Tyron Woodley is the most deserving. Now, if he goes out there and beats Gilbert Burns, particularly if he knocks him out, your equation might change a little bit there. But to me, even though Colby Covington has lost to Kamaru and got finished, I thought he gave Kamaru a much tougher fight. You've had Jorge Masvidal, who's been on an incredible win streak. They are much more deserving of a title shot, certainly in the case of Jorge anyway, um, than Tyron. I mean, just ask yourself in your mind, imagine I asked you to make a rankings under the, under the direct consideration of what I am telling you now, which is put some rankings together. Well, give me the top five welterweights most deserving of a title shot. How would they look? it wouldn't match what the rankings are. And that's really what the problem is, right? They're asking the wrong question when they ask you to rank. And they're saying, well, there's no real criteria, right? But there is an objective. And that objective is to try and assess who is in this queue ahead of the other one in service of a title shot. Okay, that's what the rankings in boxing are for. Um, even though those get all messed up as well. Okay, so with that in mind, understanding that um, I would put other people 
as it stands ahead of him. Again, you could put you could maybe even put Leon Edwards ahead of him. Certainly, I would put Jorge Masvidal up there, uh, and they you know they might end up fighting. I guess they were supposed to fight in July, of course, International Fight Week, but that all got canceled. All right. I bring this up for a reason, though, because while the rankings, I don't agree with the position, Tyron Woodley's in a very interesting spot. He is the oldest welterweight champion, I believe, on record, certainly among all the elite welterweight champions, your Militiches, your Hughes, your GSPs. He got it at a later date than all of them and held on to it at a later date than all of them, including Robbie Lawler, who he took it from. Right, So on the one hand, as I've gone over this before, he has done something at a more advanced age for a younger division in general than any of his elite peers. That deserves some serious props. That is not easy to do. On the other hand, since his loss, there's been an open question. What is really possible at age 38, which he is, I believe either 38 or 39, let me just verify here. Um, Because, you know, again, while he was able to win a title at 34, maintaining that competitiveness now that you're much closer to 40 is going to be difficult. Yeah, he turned 38 on April 7th, so newly 38. What is really possible at 38? And now you're beginning to see new, fresh blood work their way through the division. Because he is still sitting at number one, whatever validity we want to get assigned to that position and the rankings, you can say if he beats Gilbert Burns, who is ranked at sixth, He'll probably leap back into a title position. Maybe the UFC is waiting for that. I don't know. Maybe they won't give him one anyway because they had their own issues with him while he was a champion. I'll leave that to them. I don't know the answer to that. Still, it's a highly intriguing fight because at 38, I would really love to know what Tyron has left as a fighter, which is to say, I don't know the answer to that. On the one hand, I am perfectly willing to believe that at 38, It doesn't matter how talented you once were, you're going to begin to see signs of decline. Uh, You could argue that the fight with Kamaru was the first amount of evidence for that, or you can argue that that was just an off night as he has, and that he has fully recommitted himself to getting back and reclaiming what has been, in his mind, rightfully his. And you've seen him even call out and have issues with middleweights, including but not limited to Israel Adesanya, the middleweight champion. So to me... This is a bit of a crossroads fight for Tyron Woodley. Is what happened uh, at this point two marches ago an aberrant off night that he just didn't have in that moment, and he's going to come back and show that he still has a lot left to give at welterweight, even at 38? I can absolutely buy that as a plausible scenario. On the other hand, um, was that what happened two marches ago a harbinger of things to come? I can believe that is a plausible scenario as well. Gilbert Burns is an interesting test case here because he is effectively good at everything. Uh, And obviously great at jujitsu. Probably going to have a better gas tank than Tyron Woodley as well. Although that remains to be seen, obviously. And is this surging unique threat. He's quick, as I mentioned, you know, legitimate black belt world champion in jiu-jitsu, much improved striking, especially in the boxing. He's fought good guys. 
you know, he is on the come up at this point. He is ready to go. He's at another level, I think, than a lot of other contenders in that division outside of the the ones um, already in the top five. This would put him in that top five space. So there's the other side of the equation. Gilbert Burns is like this jack of all trades with an ace in the hole as it relates to jujitsu and some unique threats in terms of potentially cardio. And he can wrestle too, by the way. It's not like he can't wrestle. That can give Woodley some problems. So if Woodley can beat a guy like that, you can still say, wow, dude, Woodley is beating the Gilbert Burns is at age 38 he's still very much in this game on the other hand you lose to a guy like that yes you lost to a good one but that'd be two top contenders at that point between Usman and Burns that you would lose to in consecutive fights that might again signal uh, a different stage of Woodley's career so the stakes for Woodley are enormous the fight stands to be action-packed we think because both guys have a propensity for uh, in the case of Gilbert Burns high activity uh, well-rounded in the case of Tyron Woodley. He's had his ups and downs, but he's had really exciting fights too. He's got big power. Even at 38, I suspect the power is still all there. Then the other side here for Gilbert Burns, we kind of indicated, right? Why is this a good fight for him? It would be the best one of his career. It'd be over a former champion. It would launch him into the top five. Um, it would be a showcase of his development from you know, jiu-jitsu guy to MMA fighter, from lightweight to now welterweight. And it would be the kind of thing to just put him on the map in a way that, you know, beating Demi and Maya was interesting, but we all know Demi and Maya is literally going to work out his contract, and that's going to be it for him probably as an MMA fighter. So this is just a grand opportunity for both guys. Is a new generation of welterweights pushing through and shoving Tyron Woodley out and potentially other ones as well? We'll have to see. Or is the old guard there still the best guard, still the dominant force at welterweight, we'll see, on May 30th. Huge stakes for both guys in this contest. Perhaps a little bit more so for Tyron Woodley. Certainly more questions, I think, about what remains. But I love this fight. I love the matchmaking. I love what's on the line there. I love both guys' willingness to take it when, you know, uh, everything got messed up for the both of them and more especially for, for Tyron Woodley. In some ways... I would argue that maybe Gilbert is a slightly more favorable matchup to him than Leon, only because Leon takes a a little bit less risks, uh, fewer risks in a fight. And so because he is risk, not risk averse, but he manages it a little bit more carefully, that gives Tyron a little bit more of an opportunity to land a big shot. But, you know, Gilbert is a very capable fighter, a skilled tactician, and a a good striker on his feet. So, you know, it may be a slight degree of difference there or however you want to parse it. Um, But... In either way, it's sad. You know, I feel bad because Leon Edwards was waiting for his big moment. And if Gilbert can end up winning, he takes what Leon Edwards was building towards. And that's not fair and that's not easy. But that's just the game we're in given all the current craziness in the world in terms of travel and, and everything else. All right, 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Let's do this. I want to have a bit of a discussion with you. Uh, if I can, namely on stopping fights, I, I want to talk to you about a basic question in your mind. Does Anthony Smith have a point about stopping fights? What are you looking for? Or even what did you not see in the Smith fight? Um, that would have made you more comfortable with it happening, uh, going on, continuing, finishing out the round. 
What are the conditions under which you are looking to see fights stopped? Anthony Smith on MMA Tonight. Is this now the moment where everyone's looking at Justin Gaethje as maybe the best lightweight on planet Earth? Justin Gaethje is fundamentally better than Tony Ferguson, so I'm not sure if they ran that back, if it would look much different. Maybe that was the Gaethje effect. Like, maybe it's not Tony. Maybe he didn't have an off night, and Justin Gaethje's just good at making people look bad. At this point, there's a strong argument to be made that Justin may be the best 155-pounder on the planet. Tuesday through Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation. Meltdown. Meltdown. Have a question about MMA, sports, entertainment, or life in general? If people just came to me for the answers, the world would be a better place. Email Luke at LukeThomasShow at gmail.com and get the answers to all those burning questions during the Luke Thomas Show Midweek Mailbag. All right. We've got short time on this one, so we'll go along with the other one. But time now for the TLTS Midweek Mailbag. Let's get right into it if we can. Cobb, not a moment to waste. What do we have first? Mail, motherfucker. All right. This one comes from Jonathan, who says, Hey, Luke, prime Shane Corwin versus current Francis Ngannou. How would it go down? Ooh. That's a tough one, because Shane could wrestle. Uh, He wrestled D2, and... We don't really know about Francis. I still believe Francis's ability to hit the off switch is still better than just about anyone I've ever seen. You know what? Because the game has advanced, I will go Francis, but I reserve the right to call that one back depending on how we see how much better Francis's wrestling has actually gotten. So I'll go Francis, but on a condition. Next. Answer my question! All right, this comes from Eduardo, who says, Hey, Luke, what are the best MMA programs slash channels slash content, in your opinion, at the present? Like, in terms of what? Well, he he gives some suggestions here. He said, I would say uh, Morning Combat for entertainment and opinion. Yeah. MMA on point for timeless information. Right. Uh, Ariel for news. Uh, Hardy and you for technical breakdowns. And Chael when you want a cheap laugh. Well, those are some pretty good places to start, I would say. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to a couple of places that don't get enough love. I think Aaron Bronsetter over at TSN, he does some really great work um, as a, uh, you know, he does, he does good live event coverage. I think he's got a pretty sober, level headed perspective. I appreciate what he does. There's a YouTube boxing channel uh, called Coach Anthony. And it's a guy who actually has coached many boxers, but also for a time was the boxing coach alongside Jeff Mayweather of Mo Lawal. And he does all these boxing breakdowns and, uh, and uh, you know, tutorials on his channel. He also has some you can pay for that are like a little bit more in depth, but he's got some cool stuff. So check out what he's got. That's interesting. And let me give you one more that I like. It's something else in between. Um, you know, Mixed Molly Whoppery is a great YouTube channel. Because what he does is, you know, everyone wants to do instant analysis, instant reaction right away. He takes a step back and then does, you know, situational analysis after everything has happened and takes a much broader view of all the different pieces that end up making a situation uh, what it is. And so it's just the opposite of what everyone else is doing. And it's a great little niche he has there. and He does a phenomenal job with it. So there are three recommendations for you. Next. Message. All right, this comes from Tom, who says, Hey, Luke, 
Back when you first started the Midweek Mailbag, I asked if you would do Rogan's podcast and what you'd want to talk about, et cetera. Then you finally got the invite and this stupid virus showed up. So the question is, are there any plans of doing a remote podcast with him? Many other guests are just doing video calls these days, and for the most part, they are just as good. Of course, in person would be better, but a video call would be better than nothing. Or do you just plan to wait? Yeah, I mean, my hope is that I can travel this summer, right? So there appears to be some evidence to conclude that um, the that there is the the virus does have a certain susceptibility to heat, and so my hope is that by let's say August or so, sometime around. I mean, I have to, you know I have to confront I have to talk about Joe with this. I mean, I can't just say I'm going to be on in August, but let's assume he has an August, let's say opening. My hope is that I can just go to L.A. and then do it then. Um, and then minimize my risk of exposure both before, after, and during. Um, you know, I, I, if it comes to it, well, then, yeah, like, I'll just do the remote version. But I'd rather, you know, I'd rather do that in person. That, that might be the only time I get to be on a platform that big. So I'd like to make the most of it if possible. And I can't believe I turned that down. I could have done it the, er, the first week of March. And I was like, no, I'll do it the third. Oh, what a stupid, stupid a-hole I am. But okay, you know, you live and you learn. All right, so with that in mind, next. That's my question! All right, this comes from Chris in Houston who says, Hi, Luke. So Cejudo retires in the ring and sends his love and respect to all the fighters in his range of competition. And two days later, he posts a picture of him and his belts along with headshots of the men he beat on Instagram. Now he's engaged in a war, in a war of words with, the, with a boxer doesn't sound like a guy who's serious about retirement his cringeworthy style of verbal promotion is a turnoff he's just creepy when he talks crap he either needs to retire and go out with respect with the respect and grace he attempted to show in the cage or fight whatever he does i just hope he shuts up what are your thoughts so henry cejudo yeah henry cejudo was he going back with four was he going back and forth with uh, ryan garcia is that who he's going back and forth for i believe so yes yeah yeah yeah, I mean, he's also doing a bunch of like uh, wrestling podcasts. He did a one on Flow Wrestling. He did one. For, he did Gordon Ryan show. He did. Uh, he's doing like uh, you know, a bunch of podcasts no one listens to. Um, but in any event, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not paid attention. I mean, here's the thing: his manager comes out and was like, <laughs> "I did not understand this one at all. Maybe there's something I'm missing here. There must be. There must be something I'm missing because his manager comes out and says." that he'll fight again in the summer he's not retired i'm like dude let me see if i understand something either he's completely retired and i don't know why you would say that uh maybe to lure him back in or something maybe maybe that's it because if he's not actually retired and he does plan to fight in the summer and this is all just a bit of a ruse that's the worst thing you could do for his bargaining power ever <laughs> you would totally trash it like it's like the you know, oh, this is all just a joke. You know, don't don't believe, don't believe the hype. But I'm thinking to myself, man, that I don't think you want to say that if it's really true or uh, he's really coming back. So I didn't get that at all. I don't know, dude. If it, what he does on Instagram bothers you, unfollow him. I mean, I, I mean, we're all adults here. I don't have to hear about any of the Henry Cejudo stuff because I don't follow him on any social media. It barely comes across my radar, except for when he appears on a podcast somewhere. That's it. So you know, very, these are very solvable problems. Next. Breaking news. <laughs> oh, we got breaking news, do we? <laughs> the breaking news is we have a message. Okay, uh, good. So this comes from Brandon since you brought him up. I'll read this one. 
Uh, Brandon says, hey, Luke, it just hit me that Gaethje and Habib are both managed by the same person. Mm -hmm. Do you think that will impact the fight in any way, or am I overthinking this? Yeah, but I mean, here's the thing. Ali managed both Henry and Marlon, and they fought too. I mean, if you've got as many clients as Ali does, I don't suspect that that is any kind of an impediment to making the fight. I mean, there might be other arguments about, like, is it a good idea for any one manager to have that many clients? Should there be some kind of regulatory oversight of it or, you know, whatever? You want to make that kind of an argument, you can. But is the fact that one guy manages both a stumbling block to making the fight happen? I seriously doubt it. It hasn't been. I mean, you got to remember what most managers, virtually all managers in the MMA space, they to a large degree, align their interests with the UFC. If the UFC wants to make a fight between two guys and both guys are managed by the same guy and that manager has a, you know, a reasonably um, accommodating worldview as a manager towards the UFC's interest, what would be the issue there? Now, again, you could, again, there's a million different arguments you could make about, well, should they have that kind of a perspective towards the UFC and, isn't their fiduciary responsibility to their clients more so than blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can get into all that stuff if you want. I've had these conversations with Ali directly. Um, certainly, I disagree with some of the, the, his ideas about what the role of a manager is, but he is highly successful at it, and he's got these two. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the person is asking, but if they are, to the extent that they are asking about the idea that should we be worried that the fight is going to happen, the only X factor, as far as I can tell, is Connor. You know, that's it. That's the only X factor I can tell. And, you, you know, you're on that one. Hey, your guess is as good as mine. So I'll leave it at that. Next. Answer my question. All right. This comes from KE who says, hey, Luke, whether or not you like Hannity, there's no use shooting that video of him training. The only one worse than that was Stephen A showing his uppercut skills. Oh, I yeah. Cook. I cook, but there's no reason on planet Earth for me to shoot a video or get my own cooking show. Just because I fixed the toilet doesn't mean there's a need for me to have a home improvement instructional clipped. Also, everyone just wants to see Jones get knocked out. Here's the thing about this. People always ask me why I don't show my lifts or some of my lifts are good. But like, why don't I ever show me picture or you know photos or uh, videos of me rolling or something? It's like, listen, am I better than the average person on the street? Yes. Am I large, and does that, to an extent, confer certain advantages? Of course. Am I good in any way that you would recognize as good? No. <laughs> no, I'm not. There's nothing exemplary about my abilities in this way. I'm, I'm fine for self-defense purposes, and uh, that's really about it. I'm strong relative to the average person, and that's really about it. There's nothing, there's nothing magical, magic about uh, what I'm doing. Um, with the weights or any place else. Like, I'm, d I'm decidedly average for the most part in every way. Why the hell would I film that? Like, there's no reason to film that under any capacity or, or consideration whatsoever. It's the silliest thing on earth. And people are always like, dude, film that. I'm like, for what purpose? To get ro I mean, I'm not Stephen A. Smith bad, but you know, there's the good, then there's Stephen A. Smith bad. And I'm somewhere in the middle. At worst, or excuse me, at best, it'd just be boring. So, you know what? Not everything you do in life needs to be filmed. And I say this as somebody who made a career, you know, putting a microphone in front of his face or turning the camera around and filming himself. 
I film myself on the things where I think, I hope, there is some value add. You will get nothing out of watching me lift weights. You will get nothing out of watching me roll unless you are a complete zero and you're desperate for some kind of greater insight into my life. But you know what? I'll keep those things private. I can't imagine people want to watch me. You know, it's like you might as well just watch me fold laundry or nap. I'm better at those things. All right, next. All right, this comes from Adrian, California, who says, Hey, Luke, congratulations on your new Morning Combat Classic show. I really Thanks. enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Hopefully, there'll be many more episodes to come. For someone who didn't experience those fights live, it is a blast. So, thank you for that. Uh, he also goes on to ask, Luke, since you mostly don't read fiction, who's your most interesting historical figure or historical event to read about? Ooh, well, that's a good one. Um, Hmm. Well, I don't know that I focus on any one particular historical figure or any one historical event. I have trended towards um, the I'm, I'm the scintillating topic of Middle East history, probably more than anything. You know, I've read and studied the uh, the uh, essentially the changes that Kamal Ataturk. Uh, implemented in Turkey. Uh, certainly, I've read the work of Edward Said. Um, Orientalism is his sort of seminal work. Um, and, uh, you know, well, sort of his, his contemporary uh, opposite in many ways. Uh, I, I, but I've not really focused to any strong degree on any kind of one figure or uh, otherwise a moment, just sort of general trends and things. You know, I've done a lot of work uh, in terms of personal reading on the philosophy of science, which brings you back to a lot of the same kinds of figures, you know, the folks who are behind the logical positivists and, and, and whatnot. But um, I can't say there's any one one period of history. You know, one thing that has been a, 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 a real weakness of mine is I don't know much about South American history, so I've been trying to pick up on that. But that's just a recent a recent thing. I, to answer the question, I, I'm sort of like, I'll go takes me i tend not to i tend not to overly focus on one topic if you found any f commonality among what's on my bookshelf in terms of historical stuff you'd find a lot of middle east study but that's really kind of about it that's that's you know highly diverse believe it or not and and complicated and you know every 10 years feels like a hundred in every other one's lifetime so um, you know, even then I'm to, to even say I'm literate on those issues would be a gross exaggeration. Um, but yeah, that's about, I'd say that's about the only real common theme for historical reading that I tend to focus on. Let's do a couple more of these, Scott. We got any more? Yeah, we got one here. So this comes from Todd from North Dakota who says, uh, Hey, he's referencing our May 12th show it says, uh, Hey Luke, hope you, your family and your crew are doing well. I just wanted to thank you for doing that piece about the UFC, about how the UFC may withhold fighter pay if they don't adhere to safety protocols set forth by the UFC. I first became aware of this Sunday morning when the results were flashing on the ticker tape. But while the results were flashing across the stream, saying that fighter pay may be withheld if they don't adhere to the protocols, that's all it said. It didn't make much sense. And your segment cleared up a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, once again, you and your crew prove why you are the best in MMA when it comes to news. Thank you for that segment. Well, yeah, we are. And uh, yeah, I agree. His question here, uh, what can a guy do to help these kids with some of these injustices? Uh, most of the fighters come from nothing like I did. It hurts every time I hear how they get screwed over so bad. Is there someone or someplace a person can contact to become 
better educated on the antitrust litigation that you mentioned or what efforts are being done to get federal legislation for uh, MMA Ali Act and how may I, how may I be able to help? So the person to talk to on the Ali Act, we've had him on the show a number of times. He's a Republican congressman out of the uh, great state of Oklahoma where I was mugged not once but twice. I didn't tell Mark Wayne Mullen that, but that's the congressman. It's Republican Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen. He is uh, working with Randy Couture and Nate Quarry and many others to get the Ali Act extended to MMA. So if you want to show support or know what you can do to facilitate that, call his office. Especially if you're a constituent, that would be even better. But just finding ways to um, to understand what the congressman would potentially want from you uh, as just an ordinary citizen, even then you still have a potential effect. So call their office, uh, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen. Well, Mark Wayne is one word. Uh, so you can, by the way, former MMA fighter. I think he went three and zero and then became a congressman. So consider that. Okay, so that's on the Ali Act side. On the other side, I don't really know what the answer is for what the ordinary fan can do to get these guys paid. I mean, you know, if they have a product that they sell, buying it, um, to the extent you can do that. If they do any kind of contest with a sponsor, you know, showing in some kind of enthusiasm. But really, I would say, you know, somebody out there needs to find a way to get these guys to collectively bargain. Until you can meaningfully help in that process, they're just going to be sort of stuck under the same system that they've been in because it appears that none of them, uh, they, I think they all, what they want to do is they want to wake up with a reality where they go to bed one night, they wake up the next morning and everything is already done. And there's no real sacrifice that's po- that they, they you know, ultimately have to make. They don't have to ruin their own career to save somebody else's. They don't want to fall on the sword, which is why they always do it when their career is over. And, you know, that's entirely understandable. I think you could, you know, you can get, like, they're already not making what they should. Now they want to risk everything else. It's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation that they've been put in. But honestly, until somebody comes along, there's this woman, um, I've not read her book yet. I heard a podcast with her. She made a point to say that there's a difference between mobilizing and organizing. She's a famous, famous labor organizer. God, what's her name? In any event, what she had argued was mobilizing is getting a bunch of people who already agree with you to still act in concert with something, right? So let's say um, we're all against um, uh, this This prison wants to let out all the child molesters. And we show up in, as a group and protest and say, together, we think this is a terrible idea, right? So we all kind of agree. I mobilized us together, but uh, we, 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 I didn't have to convince you of anything. Organizing is different. Organizing is how do you go to a hospital where you've got nurses who have different ages, education backgrounds, races to a degree, different income brackets. They might have vastly different political perspectives. How do you get them to, uh, when they disagree across so many things, get them to agree about their shared identity? Organizing is different than mobilizing. I think people have tried to mobilize fighters. They haven't really tried to organize them yet. All right, let's do one quick one that we got to get out of here. Quick, quick one, Cobb, quick one. All right, so this is just a suggestion for either the show or your YouTube channel. Uh, this comes from Dennis, who says, Hey, Luke, long-time listener to the MMA live chat, MMA beat, all of that. I know, I know I can trust you to speak truth to power. So that is why I'd like to hear you talk to Philip O'Connor about the COVID-19 situation and the Daniel Kinahan situation for UK combat sports. Just heard him on the Eurobash podcast with Neil and Peter, and he doesn't seem interested in kowtowing to MMA power brokers. Since the beginning of the health, cri- since the beginning of the health crisis, He's had to pivot and has been on-site at hospitals, talking to officials, et cetera. Someone with knowledge in both areas willing to speak frankly. What do you think, Luke? 
All right, I will listen to what he said and see if there's something we can do with it, Cobb, because that's the kind of guy I am. I'm a man of the people, Cobb. I've always been known as Luke, man of the people, Thomas. You know what I'm saying? But in all seriousness, yeah, I'll give it a run. I didn't, I did not know about it. I tend not to be as up on European MMA minutia as I should be, but that sounds like an interesting recommendation, and I will take it to heart. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.